you, the IRA owner, have to make a choice. You can either have simple or control. Simple is you name individual people as a beneficiary on the IRA and you do nothing else, but you have zero control over them. When you're dead, they can do whatever they want at whatever rate they want with that money. If you want control, it's complicated. Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. I am Brent Nelson, and per usual, I'm joined by Rachel Sass. Rachel, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. What's new? Uh, let's see. It's 2021, New Year, and yep. I did my first 2021 DIY house project. Wow. It's wow. been a while since I've done one. I, that kitchen just like wore me out last year. I hadn't done one in so long. But this year, so the first one is we have we have a very small pantry in our kitchen. Okay. And so, you know, with the inevitable problem with the small pantry and the the shelves don't pull out, is I have no idea what's in the back, right? It gets shoved back there. I've got cans of soup. I've got, I don't know what in the world is in the back. Usually we try and put, you know, the naughty food in the back because then you'll never see it and then you won't eat it. But there's really good stuff back there. Unfortunately, it's just getting expired. So we finally put in some nice shelves that you can pull out and you can actually see everything. And then we did the same for a spice rack. And then I went extra bougie and I got fancy little glass, everything's uniform, little um, glass bottles for each of my spices. And they're all individually labeled. So it just, it looks so nice and everything's so organized. So we kicked it off pretty well this year. Where did you get these uh, shelves? Everything's on Amazon. Oh. Amazon, Amazon. Yep. Nice. And we and we actually did it really well. We thought, okay, let's just buy like one. We we bought three little spice ones because well, they're they're pretty small. They only fit like two spices per rollout. So mm -hmm. we bought three of those, but then we only bought one for the pantry, and it ended up like fitting perfectly. We don't need any more. So it was cool. Great. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. How's uh, your kitchen conundrum going? Uh, it, well, it, it's it's reached a, a truce, I guess, would be the best way to describe <laughs> it, because we have a temporary sink installed. Okay. So this there's a temporary sink, and the dishwasher is back in the house. Okay. In a temporary location. So it actually is functional. It just is, it looks like uh, we live in a cardboard box, oh, no. the way it's all sort of cobbled together. So uh -huh. uh, we're still waiting for the insurance company to tell us what they're going to give us. And then once we get that, then I think we'll start making some choices about what to do. Mm -hmm. The demolition, demolition people um, recommended to the insurance company that they replace all of our cabinets because it's it's like it's impossible to match these cabinets mm -hmm. whether the insurance company will have any interest in matching cabinets uh is anybody's guess at this point so hopefully they'll be kind and give us enough money to at least replace the cabinets and then we got to make decisions about like do you replace the flooring do you replace the backsplash do you replace you know a bunch of other stuff that goes into a kitchen so yeah that's the kitchen debacle oh man it's a, the saga continues. This will be this will be like the 
uh, our listeners' journey through your, your kitchen conundrum and yes. see how it all works out this year. I sure hope it happens this year, too. Uh, yeah. You know, I hope we have enough time to get it done this year. It feels like we should. Yeah, right? You've got, you've got a good 12 months. I think you can do it. Yeah, even we could get it done in 12 months. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that's the that's the kitchen stuff. It's uh, it's, it's happening. As I say, we're we're in a, a detente, so to speak, where we do have a functioning kitchen. It just really looks Spartan. It looks very homey. <laughs> uh rustic. Yeah, very rustic. Very rustic. At least that's the good thing of it happening during a pandemic, right? Is is you're not having any dinner parties, really not hosting no. anything. So no. you could keep it rustic for quite a while and no one needs to know. Yeah, that's true. Or maybe by the time we were gonna get around to fixing it up, like super rustic will be in. You never know. So maybe we just need to wait it out. There you go. Yep. Do not tell any members of my family about this scheme. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that they will appreciate it. Let's keep the random dishwasher, the random sink. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, let's do a podcast. How about that? All right. Let's do it. A real for real podcast. I thought we should talk about the SECURE Act. It's almost, it's basically one years old. It's, it it's Yeah. I mean, it's almost... You know, time of recording, it's basically the Secure Act's first birthday. And in honor of the Secure Act's first birthday, of course, we should talk about the Secure Act. Absolutely. And all of the goodies that the estate planning community has concocted for the Secure Act since the Secure Act was passed last year and came into effect January 1, 2020. Uh, it has lived out a tumultuous first year, and in that time, practitioners were busy coming up with all sorts of ideas about the SECURE Act. So uh, let me tee this up, if uh, that's okay with you, and hopefully this will set the table of what I'm talking about. So as a very general reminder, what the SECURE Act said was that Rather than a beneficiary who's not your spouse and basically not a disabled child, uh, being able to stretch out your IRA, stretch out the distributions from your IRA when you die over their life expectancy, which could be very long, you know, 20, 30 years. Instead, they have to take all the money out in 10 years. And really by the end of the 10th year after the year in which you die, that's really the technical rule. So, but it's effectively a 10-year rule. So by that end of that 10-year period, uh, they have to have drained the account down to zero. And that was a big departure. That was actually a money raiser in uh, the SECURE Act intended to raise money for the federal government, not today, but in the future when people who are beneficiaries of, say, an IRA uh, received the IRA as a beneficiary and then had to take the money out sooner because the sooner you take the money out, the sooner the federal government taxes you on the money. And when the money comes out, it gets taxed at the maximum tax rate that applies to you, the recipient. So the issue became one of basically two parallel, although distinct concerns, I'll say. So concern number one, can you stretch out the payments beyond 10 years? Is there any way to get around this little 10-year rule and stretch out the payments beyond 10 years. Okay, that's the first issue. 
Second issue was uh, how do you make sure that the lowest possible tax rate is the tax rate that is going to be applied to the money when it comes out? And there's sort of a, a third somewhat related concern, which is goes something along these lines. Maybe parents does not want child to be able to take all of the money out of the account whenever child wants to, because perhaps the child is not uh, very trustworthy, not good with money. They might have uh, some creditor issue or a spendthrift problem or a dependency problem, et cetera. Dependency in uh, uh, substance abuse context, not uh, children, sorry. <laughs> uh, children Dependency in the children context is not a quote-unquote problem. So just to be clear, <laughs> yeah. you know, just to be clear for everybody, that's not what I'm talking about. Uh, so there were basically four trusts that have sort of been tossed around by practitioners that I thought we should discuss because these are these are ways to accomplish these goals in some fashion. So the first trust is called a secure stretch trust, secure stretch trust. Okay, that's the first one. The second one is called a charitable remainder trust. The third one is called a qualified subchapter S trust. It goes by an acronym QSST, and some people pronounce the acronym QUIST, which is fantastic. Have an acronym and then call it QUIST. <laughs> Why not, right? Why not? And then the last one is a Beneficiary Defective Income Trust, or a BDIT. Also goes by an acronym, B-D-I-T, BDIT, okay? And it comes in a couple different varieties, but we'll just call, we'll just talk about that particular variety, okay? So these are these four trusts that uh, estate planners have kind of come up with to solve this riddle. And the idea would be you would name this type of trust as the beneficiary of the IRA. So you're not naming your child directly as the beneficiary of the IRA. So let's start with the secure stretch trust. Numero uno doesn't mean it's the best one, just means it's coming at you first. So in no particular order, the secure stretch trust uh, works as follows. There is a little nuancy rule in the IRA rules that says if an IRA owner dies and fails to name a beneficiary, or they have named a beneficiary who is a non-individual, then one of two things happens. If when they died, they were beyond the time when they were supposed to start taking required minimum distributions, which right, right now is age 72. So after age 72, if it's beyond the, the time when they're supposed to take required distributions, the rule is you have to take the money out at the same rate that the owner had to take the money out, meaning over their life expectancy. If, however, they die before that day, there is a five-year rule that's akin to this new 10-year rule. So after the, this a five-year period after they die, you have to have drained the account down to zero. So the five-year rule is bad. And then the rules say something to this effect. If you name a trust as the beneficiary of the IRA, the IRS will pretend that even though a trust is not an individual, that the trust does not exist. And instead, the IRS will peek through the trust and look inside the trust to figure out who are the actual beneficiaries of the trust and look at those individuals or non-individuals, as the case may be, to determine whether the IRA itself has 
been treated as having named an individual or a non-individual as the beneficiary. The crux of the matter is if the trust says the trustee must pay out directly to the beneficiary all of the, the withdrawals from the IRA, the IRS will only look at that one beneficiary or at the beneficiaries who get those distributions from the trust. It's called a conduit trust. If instead the trustee can accumulate, hold on to even $1 of a distribution from the IRA, the trustee has the ability to do this, to hold on to one, even $1 of the, any distribution from an IRA. Instead of just looking at the beneficiary who could get the distribution now, the IRS will look at all the beneficiaries who come after that person. And that is called an accumulation trust. And the problem with the accumulation trust historically was that most trusts either name a beneficiary or theoretically name an estate or the state of the IRA owner's demise or residency as a beneficiary in one way or the other. And when you name one of those things, they're non-individuals and naming even one non-individual will subject you to this five-year rule if the IRA owner died before age 72 or now this or this uh, distribution over the IRA beneficiary's life expectancy. So if they die after age 72. So that, that's sort of the context of the rules that that all may sound like a bunch of random, non-important information. So let me try and explain why it's important information. The life expectancy, if my memory serves me correctly, the life expectancy of a 72-year-old is something like 17 years. So if you have an IRA benefit uh, owner who dies after they turned age 72 and their life expectancy would be 17 years, 17 is longer than 10. And therefore, you would want your trust to be an accumulation trust that has a non-individual as the beneficiary. This is the premise of the secure stretch trust because under those circumstances, the trust will withdraw money. The trustee can accumulate the money in the trust. They don't have to, but they can. And the trust has 17 years to drain the account down to zero. And somewhere between age 72 and age, age 82, uh, you sort of run out of room here because I think the, the life expectancy of like an 82-year-old is is less than 10 years, just slightly less than 10 years. So at age 82, the benefits run out. And so with the secured stretch trust, what you would say is you would name the, the trust as the beneficiary in the IRA, and then the trust would say, hey, if the owner dies in this age range, then the distribution scheme of this trust will, will match an accumulation trust. And if, it, if the owner doesn't die in that age range, then it'll be a normal conduit trust, and we're going to use the normal new, under the SECURE Act, 10-year rule, so the trust will have 10 years to take the account down to zero. So in that way, you have solved for the how do you make payments longer than 10 years. That's the premise of the SECURE stretch trust. That's the first one. Yeah, I think you you nailed it exactly, Brent. The you know when we're looking at the Secure Act and we're looking at the Secure Stretch Trust, it's the game. We're playing the game with the regulations, with these rules. They are complicated rules, right? This you have to be very careful. Make sure that your trust agreement has these exact terms in it in order to get the outcome that we want. But we're playing that game of making sure that we can hold out as long as possible, keep the money in the in the account so that it, you know, 
keep accumulating income, let it grow as much as possible. Let's defer having to take it out and pay income tax on it. That is the goal. So like you said, if we can get it to 10 years, good. If we can get it past 10 years, even better. And that's what the secure stretch trust does. I think it's also really you know, important to note you were talking about how the secure stretch works, secure stretch trust works is being able to really flip those provisions, right? Depending on the terms, what, what happens when the owner of the IRA account dies? We don't know that as a state, as, as attorneys, right? When we're drafting a trust, everyone's alive. That's great, right? We have no idea what age they're going to pass away. We have no idea what the age of a beneficiary is going to, going to be. We don't even know if the beneficiary is going to be alive when that all happens. So we really need to try and plan for all of those uncertainties. And the way that we do that is we include all of these provisions in the trust agreement so that before any of those outcomes become solidified, it's in the trust agreement. That's a key thing right there is having it already down in writing and paper in the trust agreement. Then it's really, it's kind of like that light switch, kind of being able to switch it depending on now, okay, the IRA owner has passed away. Now we know everything. Now we've got the facts. We know exactly what age they were. Did they die before 72? Did they die after 72? Once we've got that information, now we know, okay, are we playing with a potentially five or 10 year rule or can we possibly do a 10 plus year kind of situation? And then like you're saying, the age 82, that's when we see the IRS life expectancy tables take a turn where it's not as great of a stretch to you know, do it over the rest of the IRA owner's life expectancy. Just do it the 10 year rule then, nice and simple. And so this allows the trustee to be able to you know, see, have these instructions in the trust document so that when the IRA owner passes away, they know exactly which situation that they can go off of. And then from there, we can determine how far we could stretch out these uh, distributions. Yeah, the secure the secure stretch trust plays in this sort of conditionality, right? It's like if if the owner dies before seventy two, it's one thing. If they d- die between seventy two and age seventy two and eighty two, it's going to be something else. And if they die after age eighty two, then obviously it's going to be a different outcome. So that that makes uh, drafting the secure stretch trust tricky, not impossible, but tricky. Um, because you have to be really cognizant of those rules. You don't want to get one set of rules when you meant to get a different set of rules. So one of the challenges of an accumulation trust is that if the trust holds on to money from the IRA, and now you're thinking, what is the tax rate going to be on that IRA distribution? If the trust holds on to the money, the trust is going to pay tax at the highest income tax rate, so 37% currently federal, plus state if it's in a, if the trust is in a state where there's a state-level uh, income tax. And it's going to pay at the highest rate after a very small amount of income. Right now, trusts pay uh, the highest rate of tax after something like $12,000 of taxable income. Uh, which is much different from individuals. So a, a single individual doesn't hit the top rate until north of $400,000 of income. And married couple filing jointly, they don't hit the top rate until north of $600,000 in income. So there's a huge difference between the income tax rates for a trust versus an individual. 
And the bottom line is typically individuals are going to pay a lower rate of tax than the trust. So the challenge with the secure stretch trust is now then, what if you don't want to give the money to the beneficiary? You don't want to have to give the money to the beneficiary, or you don't want to give the money to the beneficiary that quickly. And so uh, practitioners have thought, what if instead of using a secure stretch trust, you use the charitable remainder trust as the IRA beneficiary? Yeah, a charitable remainder trust is another really great option that people can use, and especially if they have charitable intent. That's even better. So a charitable remainder trust, there's different times, there are different, there's different types of charitable remainders trusts. There are some that pay out annuity payments. So that would be a charitable remainder annuity trust, a CRAT. Let's get going on these acronyms, guys. There's also a charitable remainder unit trust, that is a CRET. There's also a NIMCRET, and honestly, that word is now escaping my, my brain right now, but again, more acronyms. The the net income with makeup CRET, I mean- There it is, there's the NIM could, on there. How could anybody on the planet forget such an amazing acronym? <laughs> there's just uh, so many, well, hey, just a little, little side, like, side right now. Since we're on the topic of acronyms, we forgot the best acronym of all since we are talking about the SECURE Act. You know, this was one of the best acronyms ever created. Just to remind everyone, the SECURE Act is the Setting Every Community Up for Retirement Act. I mean, just, uh, it, it just sounds so lovely. It just, I get uh, it. They, they, they just didn't realize all the headaches that they were creating when they came up with that lovely acronym. I get it. I totally get how that acronym will make a person think, yeah, you probably have to take the money out after 10 years. Yeah, right. Straight to the point, right? Yeah, logically. (laughs) Well, anyway, so back to charitable remainder trusts. So there's different types of charitable remainder trusts. And when we're talking about charitable remainder trusts, first, I think it's beneficial to kind of go over the, the ground rules, right? So with a charitable remainder trust, these are trusts that the IRS has blessed. All right, IRS likes charitable remainder trust, but you have to follow the rules in order to have that trust be blessed by the IRS. So with the charitable remainder trust, what happens is we've got the settlor, they put assets into the trust. The trust is going to be making payments to a beneficiary, it's typically like a family member, depending on whether it is a unit trust or an annuity trust, depending on what kind of those payments look like. And then after that beneficiary passes away or after a term of years is over, then the remainder of that trust goes to a designated charity. So that is the the, the premise of a charitable remainder trust. Now, how this works with in terms of the IRS's rules. So the value of the charity's remainder interest, it has to be at least 10% of the total trust value. So if you put a million dollars into the trust, say we've got a million dollar IRA, the charity has to have at least a 10% stake in that. All right. So your beneficiary just can't, you know, drain the entire trust and leave nothing to charity. The IRS won't really like that. You also have, so when, when you talk about that 10%, that's really important because you have to think about who your beneficiary is, right? So it's kind of this math game, lawyers, lawyers and math. I don't know how this all comes together, but so we've got say an older beneficiary. 
So let's say we've got a mom and she wants to put the IRA into a charitable remainder trust and her son is 50 years old. He's a little bit older, right? So and if we've got in a million dollar IRA policy, that's likely chance when you run the numbers and do the math, the charity is going to get 10% of the value of the trust at the end of the day after paying out over the son's lifetime. Now it's a different story if mom instead wants to leave it to her 20 year old granddaughter. When you run the numbers, there might not be 10% in there for the charity. So you really have to kind of play there, make sure that your beneficiary and the remainder interest for the charity is gonna match up to be able to have these rules. And the, and the usual play there is, is you run into this depletion issue that you're describing with a charitable remainder annuity trust that you don't run into with a charitable remainder uni trust. And the reason for that is that with the uni trust, the trust is going to pay the beneficiary, the, the, the daughter, for ex in your example, a percentage of the value of the trust every year. And so that percentage is always going to exist. Whatever it is, it is, right? If, if the trust has a dollar, it's still that percent of a dollar. And so you don't run into the same depletion issue with the uni trust, whereas with an annuity, the annuity payment is a set dollar amount. So the dollar amount doesn't change. So you actually can run into this depletion issue where if you pay enough of this set dollar amount over enough time, you will have paid out too much, at least actuarially, you know, mathematically, you will have paid out too much to uh, a very young beneficiary, depending on uh, how how aggressively the IRS assumes at the moment that investments will increase in value. And the IRS puts out an interest rate every month by which it tells the world, this is how quickly we think investments grow. So it's called the, uh, it's called the 75, 20 rate. It's, it's, uh, an interest rate that's loosely derived from the then prevailing federal, uh, federal rates. That is a really good point that you brought up. Yes, exactly. And there's a whole, you know, we'll, I'll go right back to that issue because there's a whole another kind of set of issues in determining then whether or not you want to go with a CRAT or a CRET in terms of are you going to know what that 7520 rate is when someone passes away? So I'll get back to that. Now that we've kind of got the ground rules for the CRT, how this relates all back to the secure trust, what we're talking about today. So one way that you can um, kind of go about uh, stretching out the, the distributions as long as possible. Again, we're trying to beat the 10-year rule, right? That's, that's the goal. So if you have a charitable remainder trust that's named as the beneficiary, again, the charity is going to get the remainder, right? And whoever your beneficiary is, so let's just say again, this, the family, let's have the son, again, be our, our beneficiary. If you set it up for the son for life, that's the son for life, life. That's, hopefully that's more than 10 years. And so you could have uh, the payments going out to your son for let's say, you know, 30 years, 40 years possibly. And then whatever's left goes to your charity. And so that beats the 10 year rule. So that's a really great way that you can kind of stretch it out as long as possible. And then if you have, again, charitable intent, whatever's left in the trust will go to that charity. Now, looking again at the CRAT versus the CRUT rules, right? So you've got the annuity payments, right? And the annuity payments fluctuate, like you said, Brent. 
So that's great, right? If we if we're worried kind of about market performance, if the market does really well, maybe our beneficiary is going to get a lot more that year in their payment. Market doesn't do as well, they might not get as much that year. So that's something that uh, someone should consider. When you look at the unit trust amount, when you have that fixed percentage, that's all they get. So if your beneficiary has some life altering event that happens in year 60 of their life, they're still only going to get that 5%. That's it. They don't get any more. And so that's something else that um, you know, people should really take into consideration is if I'm picking a fixed percentage amount for my beneficiary, are they going to need more? And then, well, maybe the, the CRT isn't the best vehicle to you know, have you know, before your uh, designated beneficiary on your IRA. So a bunch of different things to kind of take into consideration, but the CRT, if you know, you've got that charitable intent and you've got a little bit older of a beneficiary that you're thinking of, it's a great vehicle to use in conjunction with the secure trust or with the secure act. It sure can be. And, and, and your point there is exactly spot on that the IRA owner first right out of the gate has to have charitable intent. Otherwise, Doing a, a CRT makes no sense whatsoever because you absolutely must give money to charity. And as you very rightly point out, let's say the CRT is set up to make a payment every year to your son for his lifetime, and then he dies one year after you. A huge chunk of money that was supposed to go to him during his lifetime instead is going to go to charity. And that might not be exactly what was intended, but that would be the result. So an IRA owner who's going to use a CRT as a beneficiary just has to realize that. And the other piece to your point is you cannot prepay any of the payments out of the CRT. So should something happen in son's lifetime where son needs more money, there's no way that you can get more money to that person out of the CRT. If there's other money to handle those issues, it's not as much of a big deal. But if if uh, you know the IRA is a, a large part of the parent's net worth, and there could be this need for extra funds in the future for the for the child who's going to be the beneficiary ultimately of the trust, then the CRT doesn't it just doesn't afford you the flexibility that you want. So there's another angle to this, and the other angle is how do we then potentially create a trust where now maybe we don't need to distribute money out of the trust so we can hold on to the money in the trust. And that sounds a lot like an, a quote unquote accumulation trust, but we do, do not want the trust to have to pay the tax on the IRA money. So how then do we come up with a scheme that lets you do both of those things? And that's where the QSST or QUIST and the BDIT, the BDIT, the Beneficiary Defective Income Trust, that's where they come in. So the QSST and the BDIT are trying to accomplish that result where you can have the trust 100% control the money. The trust is not obligated to pay the money out at all. And the money is always going to be taxed at the beneficiary's tax rate, not the trust tax rate. So why don't you give us uh, at least the sort of high-level skinny on on quists and we could start drilling down into these because these things are they're a little bit complicated but i think we can explain it in simple enough terms that people will get what we're talking about yeah so the quist just like we talked about the crt you've got 
ground rules that you have to automatically start complying with, right? Otherwise, the IRS is not going to like what you're doing. So I think it's first beneficial we talk about that, right? Let's let's figure out the ground rules. One of the first ground rules is that the trust can only have one beneficiary, and that beneficiary has to be a U.S. individual. Um, so we're looking for a U.S. resident, U.S. citizen. For a quist, you also have the the trustee also has to distribute out all of the accounting income each year to that beneficiary, and the beneficiary has to elect to be treated as the income tax owner of all of that income of all of the the income each year. So when you think about it in the sense of the Secure Act, the proceeds of it can be made payable to an S corporation. So we've got the QSST shareholder and we've got that individual trust beneficiary. And so basically the plan proceeds are going to be going to the income, which has to be distributed out to that one beneficiary. So that's kind of how we get the QSST trust involved in the, the Secure Act. With the, the QSSTs, as you're pointing out, the, the real, that huge limitation of only being able to have one beneficiary at a time is obviously a challenge. And if you imagine that there are, say, more than one child uh, involved, then it means you have to have multiple QSSTs. And, and where a lot of these rules for the QSST are coming from are focused very exclusively on the rules that apply to S corporation ownership. Okay, so let's just take like one step back here. And in the eyes of the IRS, corporations uh, are either what are called a C corporation or an S corporation. In a C corporation, the corporation pays tax at the corporate rate. And then when it distributes earnings as dividends, the shareholders pay tax on the dividends. So there's two levels of tax. With an S corporation, the corporation does not pay tax. Instead, the owners of the corporation have to realize and pay tax on all of the tax items of the corporation, whether or not they got distributed out to the owner during the year. Okay, that's sort of the first little premise here. The second premise of the S corps is that only certain people can be owners of S corps and trusts as a general proposition are not allowed to be owners of S corps. However, this QSST trust is an exception to the rule. And so what the S-Corp rule says, hey, you can, name, you can have a QSST trust that is a shareholder of, a, of an S-Corporation, and that's all fine and dandy, but it can only have this one beneficiary at a time, and you have to always distribute all the income of the trust out to that beneficiary every year. And that beneficiary has to agree, agree excuse me, that for income tax purposes, that beneficiary will always pay the tax on behalf of the trust, at least as it relates to the tax items that are coming from the S corporation. So if you're thinking about the structure of the QSST, it's there's the trust, like at the very top of the tree is the trust. It is a shareholder in an S corporation that's below the trust. And then what you would do ultimately is you would have the S corporation be the beneficiary on the IRA. And so why would you do that? Well, First of all, when you do that, you're going to be subject to the 10-year rule. So that sort of sounds kind of bad because you haven't named a, an individual. There's no possibility of stretching out uh, distributions, et cetera. But you, you name that S corporation as the beneficiary of the IRA because you're going to get the 10-year rule to apply. That's somewhat the rule that's going to apply if you didn't have the S corporation as a beneficiary anyways. And so you're no worse off. And then when the IRA 
makes a distribution into the S corporation. So the money's in like a corporate account. The money goes into this corporate account because it's an S corporation and the owner is a QSST and the beneficiary of the QSST has promised that they will pay the tax coming out of the S corporation. The money coming into the S corporation from the IRA is then taxed on the beneficiary's tax return. So the beneficiary pays their tax rate on the money coming out of the, the IRA. It's a very strange, indirect, weird, circuitous way to get to the beneficiary's tax rate. Uh, but that's sort of the premise. And then what really happens is the trustee or what could happen is the trustee of the QSST, which could be the beneficiary, that they could be their own trustee, but the trustee of the QSST, they control the S corporation, which means they also control when money comes out of the IRA. So if they need more money from the IRA, they can take it out. And in addition, uh, they can control when the S corporation pays a dividend. So when money comes out of the S corporation into the trust. And so the trust rules say that when it, when you get a distribution from the S corporation, you have to pay that money out to the beneficiary. So whenever the trust decides, yeah, now is the time to make a distribution to this beneficiary, say enough money to cover the taxes, then the trustee of the S of the QSST has the S corporation distribute that money out of the S corp into the trust. And then the trustee distributes the money from the trust to the beneficiary. And they have to, they have to distribute the money from the trust to the beneficiary. They're compelled to do so by the uh, QSST rules. So it's a very convoluted uh, structure. It's not anybody's fault other than Congress. So, you know, if you want to blame somebody, just like complain to Congress, but ultimately if you sort of take a step back and remember the ori original premise of how do we make it so that we can always have the trustee control when money comes out of this IRA, because maybe we don't want to give the money to the beneficiary every year and make the beneficiary pay the tax on distributions from the IRA, because ultimately the beneficiary's tax rate should be lower than the trust tax rate. If you want to accomplish those two things, then through this sort of indirect way, through this indirect way, you have accomplished it by using a QSST and making that S corporation that's owned by the QSST, the beneficiary on the IRA. So, you know, again, we've, we've had one year, one very incredible year of the life of the SECURE Act. And in this one year, practitioners have come up with this as an option. So that's the, that's the QUIST option. I'm sure nobody has any questions about that. And it is crystal clear. Very clear. Yeah, very, very clear. <laughs> Super clear. The most clear. <laughs> yeah, I guess if it's not clear for anybody, we could always use the line of, well, just trust us. That's the way it works. Just, mm -hmm. just, just trust us. Uh, that's the way it works. All right. That's the quest. So I also teed up this beat it thingy. So give us a, give us a rundown, at least briefly of the beat it thingy. Yes. So the whole premise of this beat it thingy, the beneficiary defective trust, uh, it's also called a section 678 trust. And the reason for that is because it's going off of the Internal Revenue Code, section 678. And again, to your point, right, we're trying to make it so that we want the distributions to be taxed at the beneficiary's tax rate, not the trust tax rate. So how we're doing that is we're creating this trust so that 
Under Section 678 of the code, the beneficiary, we are under the terms of the trust agreement, we are going to give them a right to withdraw everything from the trust, all of the principle of the trust, okay? So it's essentially treated, so the beneficiary is essentially treated as if they were the grantor, right? So now we have a grantor trust. So all of the, the income, everything is directly attributable to the beneficiary. So then when we've got distributions that are gonna be coming out, they're gonna be taxed at the beneficiary's income tax rate, not at the trust tax rate. So that is the basic premise of how we get it done. Of course though, um, there's the scary thing that you just gave the beneficiary the option of withdrawing all of the trust principal. So um, whether or not you have a trustworthy beneficiary or not a very uh, spend happy beneficiary, that's something you really need to consider before doing this option. You certainly do. Yeah, you want to you want to think really carefully about that because you really have to give the beneficiary the ability for some moment in time to withdraw everything out of uh, out of the trust. It creates a couple of really strange issues. So first of all, the tax rule, which is it's strange, but it's helpful from the perspective of not taxing the trust it might be an issue for the beneficiary, depending on their ability to pay tax. But when you have one of these withdrawal powers and then you let it lapse, which is essentially what would happen, you know, let's say you tell the beneficiary you could withdraw everything, all the trust uh, assets being this IRA account from the trust within say 30 days. And if you don't withdraw it within 30 days, you lose this ability to withdraw these assets from the trust. What the what the rules say is once that ability to withdraw from the trust lapses, the beneficiary is treated as owning everything in the trust for income tax purposes. And therefore they have to pay the income tax on behalf of the trust every year forever, no matter what. And there's there's there are no take backs. There's no way to get out of it. They're just stuck. So that's a, you know, depending on the wherewithal of the beneficiary to pay the tax, that might be an interesting little conundrum. The other issue that you're pointing out is you actually have to give the beneficiary this ability. And so if they're a spendthrift and they decide, no, I'm going to take everything out of this trust, they can take everything out of the trust. They, they're going to have a window in time where that's possible. The final piece is when you let this ability to withdraw lapse and the lapse exceeds and just bear with me with these numbers, uh, exceeds the greater of $5,000 or 5% of the principal of the trust at the time, then everything in excess of those weird numbers that I just said is a deemed gift to the trust. It's really a deemed gift to the uh, remainder beneficiaries of the trust. And so to a degree, you have to make the beneficiary make a gift into the trust for gift tax purposes. All of which is to say that if the IRA balance is high enough that making that gift would be a taxable gift, then this could be a problem. So let me pause on that for just one second. Today, as we speak now, each beneficiary has an $11.7 million lifetime gift tax exclusion, meaning they could make a gift of $11.7 million and pay zero gift tax. The new Congress is and the new administration are contemplating reducing that down by at least half. I mean, a $5 million, say, or $5.5 million IRA would still be an enormous IRA. That's a big IRA. There's not a lot of those floating around. So, uh, you know, the chances of running into this issue, this gift tax issue, aren't great. But if the beneficiary themselves have 
uh, uh, significant wealth, then this could be a problem. So you kind of have to be aware of the personal net worth of the beneficiary before you try and do a beat it in this context. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's another really important aspect that you really need to consider. And right, and that's part of all this, the how we talked about at the very beginning, this is a complicated issue, right? And it's because of what's so uncertain, right? And we're trying to put as much as we can into the trust agreements as possible now so that we can try and get a little bit of certainty for the future. But the fact of the matter is that, you know, we we don't know when people are going to pass, how old people are going to be. We don't know if Congress is going to uh, change the rules on us. So it's uh, just something you really need to sit down with your advisor and, and really chat through a bit. That's it exactly. And the the reality is this, for the most part in this area of the world, certainly dealing with IRAs, because they're just very complicated creatures to begin with. You have to make a choice. You, the IRA owner, have to make a choice. You can either have simple or control. Simple is you name individual people as a beneficiary on the IRA and you do nothing else, but you have zero control over them. When you're dead, they can do whatever they want at whatever rate they want, with that money. If you want control, it's complicated. You just, you, that's it. You could only have one or the other. It's, there aren't a lot of uh, instances in life where it is that black and white, but in this instance, it is that black and white. Yeah, exactly. You, you summed that up pretty perfectly right there. It it really is. Are you going to be, do you want to make your own rules or do you want the current rules from Congress? This, the SECURE Act, do you want those to be your roles? That's what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. Not always an easy choice, but it's uh, it's a really curious little area of the law. It's super technical. No one, as far as I can tell, is talking about making these rules less technical. <laughs> uh, if anything, we've made them more technical through the SECURE Act. And it's, it's I think, you know, if I'm putting on my sort of per- prognosticator hat here, I think it's going to be an area that is these retirement, this retirement account area. It's going to be an area of continued change in the future. It's a pot of money that Congress from time to time is motivated to try to dip their hands in or to throw back out at taxpayers in, in the form of tax savings. And so they're changing the rules somewhat frequently. So these rules are, they're complicated, they change, they're going to continue to be complicated and they're going to continue to change and uh, there's nothing we can do about it. So there you go. Happy and birthday, Secure Act. Yes. <laughs> Commemorating its first birthday. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, look, I really appreciate you uh, helping me out with this and chatting with me about this incredible topic, uh, <laughs> topic that I, I'm sure everybody was waiting for us to talk about. Actually, I think we're going to talk about it more. It's it's a very uh, it's a very nuanced and and uh, meaty topic, and we still have not covered all of it. Oh, yeah. We could probably talk for hours on end about this with pictures and graphs and doing all the calculations. So there's definitely more to this story in the future. All right, Rachel. Well, thank you again. Have a good one. Yeah, always a pleasure. If you're enjoying what we're doing with the podcast, please subscribe and follow us on social at Wealth and Law and follow our blog, wealthandlaw.com. See you there.